and good morning. This is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and we're glad that you're here. You have a uh, yellow piece of paper inside your bulletin. I see some of them already, and those are, those are notes from this morning, if that helps you to follow along. And if you want to care to make notes on that, that's fine, but uh, whatever works for you this morning. I suppose uh, a pretty good place for us to start would be to uh, just ask where we are in, in terms of how Americans feel about the legality of abortion. According to Gallup, which is been polling this for the last 42 years. Uh, you'll see a little graph up here. And uh, I'm not going to elaborate on it except to note that uh, those who believe that it should be illegal under all circumstances has actually dropped from 21% in 1975 to 18% last year. But for those who believe it should be legal only under certain circumstances, such as cases of uh, rape or incest, that sort of thing, uh, that number has also dropped from 54% to 50% last year. And then for those who believe it should be legal under all circumstances, well, that number has risen from 22% and uh, 42 years ago to 29% last year. Well, I'm not going to elaborate on it except to say there's, I guess depending on how you want to look at this, there's some good news, uh, there's some bad news, but any way you look at it, there's still lots to be done. Amen? Legal under all circumstances. That includes a procedure known as late-term or partial birth Abortion. It has now been some 18 years since the Supreme Court ruled in Stenberg uh, v. Carhartt, uh, ruled making this practice legal in, in all of our states. If you're not familiar with the procedure, I shall leave it to your own discretion to discover uh, what this involves. And I'll, I'll say, that's all I'm going to say about that except to say this. I warn you, uh, if you care to check that out, it is, it is not for the squeamish. Justice Stephen Breyer, who had the task of writing the majority opinion in that case, apologized for the language that he used uh, describing the procedure to, uh, to end what he called potential human life, saying that his choice of words might seem, and I quote, clinically cold, callous to some, perhaps horrifying to others. Well, Justice Scalia, who wrote the dissenting opinion on that method of killing, would have agreed with that. He said it is so horrible that the most clinical description of it evokes a shudder of revulsion. And the notion that the Constitution of the United States, and again I'm quoting Scalia, prohibits the states from simply banning this visibly brutal means of eliminating our half-born posterity is quite simply absurd. And that's why I've entitled this message, Defending the Defenseless. I actually uh, got that phrase from the writings of George Orwell. How many of you read 1984 when you were in high school? I don't guess they read that anymore. I don't know if they do or not. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a depressing, <laughs> rather chilling novel. But I got that phrase from Orwell, who actually uh, used the phrase in a 1946 essay entitled Politics in the English Language. He said this, in our time, political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible, designed to make li lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give the appearance of solidity to pure wind. He says that this language is deliberately vague or meaningless because it was intended to hide the truth rather than to express it. And along those same lines, I also read uh, from an old issue I had of Touchstone magazine, David Mills said this, something in us makes us give good names to the bad things we want to do. That's just one of our, our failings morally, isn't it, spiritually? after which the good names keep us from feeling guilty when we do the bad things. We just call it something else. Those good names are known as euphemisms. 
How many of you are familiar with the term euphemism? Uh, those, those are polite, indirect expressions uh, that replace words and phrases considered harsh or impolite or which suggest something unpleasant. And they do serve a function, at least they, they did uh, at one time in our nation's life. Uh, it seems to me today we've, uh, we're, we've become very crass and will say almost anything, but euphemisms actually served a pretty good purpose. There was a time, and I'm old enough to remember, when a woman would excuse herself, say, from the table to visit the bathroom, she might have said she was off to powder her nose. Uh, I asked my wife if that women ever said that much these days. She said, yeah, you don't hear it, hear it all that much anymore. Likewise, my father, when I was growing up, I heard him on more than one occasion say he had to go see a man about a horse. And uh, any of you familiar with that term? <laughs> And, and I, I smiled to think about it even to this day because I thought, well, we never had a horse. So, and one day I finally realized, oh, that's not what he's talking about. Well, uh, euphemisms abound in the abortion debate, and that's my point. Things like right to privacy. These are all euphemisms for, uh, and code for abortion. Women's health and reproductive freedom. Oh, freedom. Sounds like a good thing, right? Freedom of choice. Reproductive health care, a woman's right to control her own body. Even the term terminate, that's a euphemism. When I, whenever I hear the term terminate, I can't help but think sometimes about Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know what I'm talking about, the Terminator. What was the Terminator? He was just a high-tech killing machine. That's all in the world he was. And it's always interesting to me to note that it is the pregnancy that gets terminated, not the baby. It's not the child that gets terminated. We talk about terminating the pregnancy. Well, beloved, whatever terms we use, the practice places the most vulnerable among us at grave risk, and hence the rest of my title, or defending the defenseless. And those are the choices that we have today. We can either defend the indefensible, or we can choose to defend the defenseless. And among the most vulnerable are those with a genetic flaw known as Down syndrome. How many of you have known uh, someone with Down syndrome. I grew up around the corner, and my cousin Diane will re remember uh, uh, Billy Gibbons, who re lived right a few doors down from you, Diane. And uh, Billy, uh, I remember growing up uh, with Billy and going to church with Billy all through my growing up years. And uh, Billy was a very sweet, sweet guy. He really was. He was great. And I, I, he actually lived to the age of 63. And uh, when, we, when we think about that, uh, as I actually came across this. I think very providentially, uh, and I want to share this with you. Last year, just this past summer, CBS News came up uh, with a story. They did a piece called, What Kind of Society Do You Want to Live In? Inside the country where Down syndrome is disappearing. And that country is Iceland. And here's the way the process works. Using an ultrasound, blood test, and the mother's age, there's a test called the combination test, which determines whether the fetus will have a chromosome abnormality, the, the most common of which results in Down syndrome. Children born with this genetic disorder have distinctive facial features, a range of developmental issues. Many people born with Down syndrome, however, can live full, healthy lives with an average lifespan of around 60 years. That from the CBS article itself. According to CBS, the termination rate, and that's their word, again, there it is, the termination rate for those diagnosed with this genetic abnormality in the U.S., 67%. Two out of three times when this test is conducted, the mother chooses to terminate that child. In France, it's 77%. In Denmark, it's 98%. One of the counselors at the hospital told CBS News uh, this, and I quote, 
Listen carefully. We don't look at abortion as murder. We look at it as a thing we ended. We ended a possible life that may have had huge complications, preventing suffering for the child and for the family, and I think that is more right than seeing it as murder. That's so black and white. Life isn't black and white. Life is gray. I commend her for her honesty. Life sometimes is gray, but not that often. So, are we now to value a person's life in terms of his or her intelligence? Are we now to see people who are not even yet formed as being defective because of their limitations, because they lack certain skills and will never be as valuable to society or contribute as much to our gross domestic product? Is that how we're to view things? David Mills, going back to that article I mentioned earlier, points out that parents testify that children with Down syndrome, and I quote, are unusually loving, gentle, not as hard to raise as other people think. And he even speaks of a charity that he knew of that places these children for adoption that never has fewer than 100 couples on its waiting list eager to adopt him. What says Holy Scripture? This is a worship service, and we're here to worship the God, the God of Scripture. What does Scripture say? Let's go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, where we see that man is not just simply a higher animal. I saw a movie recently in which, you know, here's the chart, and we see, you know, man, you know, just slowly evolving. We're just not, that's, that's the, the message for today. Well, we're just, we're an animal form, a higher animal form, the highest animal form, but nothing more, nothing less. But what we read in Genesis is this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are not simply a higher form of life, let alone a defective machine. God breathes into Adam his own breath, his spirit, so that Adam becomes a living soul, or as we might say today, an immortal soul. Thus, God forbids the deliberate taking of life, as he says a few chapters later in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because God made man in his own image. The image of God that's in each and every one of us. I, I think it is the most powerful and the clearest statement that there not only is a God, but that he is our God, that he has made us in his image. We bear the image and likeness of God more so and in a way that no animal, no matter what type, could ever do. I like C.S. Lewis's way of putting this. He says this, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, and civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. You and I are immortal because we're made in the image of God. And when does this happen? Does this happen at birth? No. The psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 139, that we read is very clear. King David says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. And how does the king know this? He knows this because he says, because I know that because you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. This past week, I happened to be visiting with my mother. She lives up in Cumming, so I don't get to see her, see her all that often. But I was up to see her, and among the things that we talked about, and this, we're talking about a lot of things, she said, oh, I want to show you something. She brought out all this handiwork. She still knits and crochets, as did most of the women in my, in my family. 
our, both my grandmothers. They, I mean, they could knit and crochet and talk to you and watch TV at the same time. And I don't know how they did it. Take two metal sticks and a, a, a string of yarn and make these beautiful crocheted and knitted items. When I, thought, when I saw my mom's handiwork there, I thought about this psalm, and I thought about how David says, I praise you, therefore, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's awesome to me that she can do that with her hands. But even more awesome and more, more wonderful is the works, as King David says, that your, my soul knows it very well because my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven. There's that imagery again. In the depths of the earth, he says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book they were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, even when there was none of them. King David was actually more right than he knew. And even though most of us here today are laymen in terms of science and in terms of medical knowledge and so forth, even what we know just from our exposure to these things ought to leave us in even greater awe than King, King David was at how unbelievable these bodies of ours are and how that those started out from two simple cells, well, not so simple as we know, but two little cells, and they become all of, of what you and I are. And we ought to be filled with an even greater sense of awe and amazement. But we're all born with a congenital defect. Did you know that? You came into this world with a very serious congenital defect. As King David says in his great prayer of confession in Psalm 51, we are sinners. We are all fallen sons of Adam. We are all fallen daughters of Eve. And we are so even from our conception, King David says. And I fail to see how a potential life could be called a sinner. Now, King David says we are sinners from the very beginning. To put it another way, we're not sinners because we sin. Beloved, we sin because we are sinners. That is our nature, and that is what we're born. And that's, that's really hard to believe when I, when I look at, especially a, a newborn or one who's recently born, and you look at that sweet baby lying in its mother's arms, and it's hard to believe that inside that tiny infant beats the heart of a rebel. A sinner who is utterly selfish and who never has to be taught to lie. You remember the first time your children started lying to you? Where did they get that? Did you do this? I didn't do it. Lisa blamed her, her little sister for writing on the wall. That's the one we remember. There's only one problem with that. Jill was little. She, I said, Jill can't write. <laughs> and she realized oh, that wasn't a very good lie. But you know what? She got good at it. She got good at it because we all do. But God promised Adam and Eve that one would come to destroy Satan and to destroy his works called the seed of the woman. And we know this as the incarnation, the enfleshment, if you will, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, whom all things were made by, became one of us in order to die in our place, to die the sinner's death so that we could be free from the curse of sin and have eternal life. And that is the gospel. Amen? Now, question. When Mary was carrying the one who was the Son of God and the Son of Man, was he a potential human life? Is there anything potential about Jesus? No. Now, nor did he beam down, as those of us who grew up watching Star Trek, you know, just from another place, just suddenly beam down from afar. No, unlike you and I, Jesus was sinless. And he still is one of us. Did you realize that? He didn't just suddenly not become one of us. No, he is still one of us, thus affirming the sanctity of human life. And that, beloved, 
if that does not affirm the sanctity of human life, I don't know what else could. The fact that the creator God became one of us and remains one of us. Harry Myers, uh, the late Anglican theologian, <clears throat> put it this way, the Christian mind surveys the human scene under the illumination of the fact that God became man, taking upon himself our nature and thereby exalting that nature for all time and eternity. Thus, the Christian's conception of the human person is a high one. His sense of the sacredness of human personality being deeply grounded in revealed theology and the truth. So as Christians, we don't need euphemisms. We don't need, you know, the word euphemism, it just means good speech. Prefix you for good and the word speech. Because our words are good. Our words are the gospel. Jesus put it this way, speaking of himself as the shepherd who loves and cares for us as sheep. He says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And that's what abortion's about. It's about stealing life and killing and destroying. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That is the promise of our creator in the gospel. But you know, those earliest Christians in the Roman Empire, for them, abortion was not illegal. Neither was another practice similar to it called abandonment. You could even take a child, talk about late-term abortions, a, person could, a woman could give birth to a child if the father, if the head of that family did not claim, for whatever reason, chose not to claim that child, that child could be legally abandoned. Did you know that? child could just be left anywhere, side of the road, in the woods, wherever, where it would usually die, although sometimes these children were rescued, if I could call it that, because they were usually rescued by people who would raise them to become slaves or prostitutes or whatever. Well, it's not a, it, it was not an option for those early Christians. You have there on our, on our screen a quote from the Didache. The Didache is considered the earliest church manual that the church used written in the first century. And among the words there for these Christians was this, thou shalt not murder a child by abortion nor kill him when born. That's talking about the practice of abandonment. And then going back even further into the Old Testament times, we read these words in Leviticus where it says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among, among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech. Do we have that slide? That unsavory looking statue or image there is the Canaanite god Molech. You'll notice flames there. And, and what you can't really see is that that is, an, that is an idol made of metal, of bronze or some other metal. And you, the, the man who's placing his child in the, in the arms of Molech. That, that image is burning hot. I mean, it is deadly hot. And he's about to place his child in the arms of that God. You'll notice on the right at the bottom, men beating on drums. You notice on the left that there are men blowing horns. Do you know why they're doing that? To drown out the cries of that baby who's going to be burned to death in the arms of Molech. And you say to yourself, why would a parent do that? Why would a parent whose inclination is to do anything and everything to spare and to protect their children, the most normal instinct imaginable. Why would they do that to their child? Because of the promise that the gods of Mo the, the priests of Molech made that if you sacrifice your firstborn to Molech, Molech will give you lots more children and prosper you and give you wealth. Well, that's a lie, isn't it? Just like all the lies of the enemy, 
but no more so than the lies from the gods of our age. And what are the gods of our age? Among them, casual sex, which doesn't exist any more than Molech existed. It's an absolute illusion. It's an absolute lie. There are gods of convenience, gods of self-centeredness, gods of greed, and on and on and on we could go. But you and I as individuals, you and I collectively as a church, we have a choice. We have a choice. We, we, we don't have to bow to the gods of our age. The challenge before us and the choice, one of the choices before us is to live godly, chaste lives. Whether we're married or single, we're to live chaste lives. And we can choose to defend the defenseless. We can do it a number of ways. And one of the ways we can do that is to speak the truth in love. You say, well, I'm not an expert on that. I, I'm not either. Listen, I had to do a lot of, a lot of researching and fact-checking and some of the things just to, just to get this together. But you know what? You have some of this information. My challenge to you this morning, stay informed. Get informed so that you can reason with others. And I don't mean shouting others down or name-calling and all the ugliness that goes sometimes with this debate. Uh, it, it just really is not productive. But, but reason with those around you. Reason with those and persuade and do so speaking the truth in love. And we can do it collectively. Uh, I thought as I was preparing this about uh, my good, good friend, a former colleague, Charles Rossell, First Baptist Church of Leesburg. We were colleagues. Uh, he was a tennis buddy of mine for a number of years back in the 80s uh, in Florida. And he was the pastor there for many years. And for 32 years, the First Baptist Church of Leesburg has had a, uh, cr a crisis. They call it a pregnancy and family center helping young women. Those who choose life are supported as they live out their decision. They're supported in many tangible ways, including adoption planning, childbirth classes, parenting education, and so forth. And even those who do not, those who do not choose life, are nevertheless offered support through abortion counseling. And they have been a tremendous witness and have literally saved hundreds of lives of infants who would have been aborted and saved their mothers from the trauma of, of having to deal with that as well. Let me close with another word from Deuteronomy. We read from Deuteronomy earlier when Moses has, among his last words to the Israelites before he's about to die and send them on into the promised land, he says this, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life, Moses says, so that you and your children may live, for the Lord is your life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.